Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Pay Per View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place some bets and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. Pay Per View, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Podcasts, and now streaming on the iconic media platform. And the first subject this week is Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump. This is in the Daily Mail. Jeffrey Epstein's first victim says he introduced her to Donald Trump, Mar-a-Lago, in the 1990s when she was 14 and the pedophile said she was a good one, right? A woman has alleged in a new lawsuit filed against Jeffrey Epstein's estate that she was the convicted pedophile's first victim and he introduced her to Donald Trump when she was 14. The woman, known as Jane Doe in the suit, alleges that when the now-deceased pedophile made the introduction at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Florida resort in the 1990s, he asked, This one's a good one, right? Trump, according to the litigation, smiled and nodded in agreement. The case was filed in Manhattan Federal Court Friday, the Daily News reports. The woman was too young at the time to understand when Trump and his financier chuckled and she was left to feel uncomfortable, the suit says, the Daily News reports. Trump is not accused in the suit of any wrongdoing. The suit is one of more than two dozen filed by women against the dead financiers, the state alleging they were sexually abused by Epstein, who at age 66 took his life in a Manhattan jail cell while awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges in August. The victim, according to the litigation, met Epstein and his alleged madam, Ghislaine Maxwell, when she was 13 and while attending Interlochen Arts Camp in Michigan. The suit says the victim at the time was attending the camp for vocals. Epstein and Maxwell groomed the young girl for abuse by frequently talking about sex and insisting she indulged of every whim, according to the suit. She alleges she was first sexually abused by Epstein in the late 1994 and claims she travelled with him and Maxwell on his private jet. The alleged abuse took place at Epstein's Upper East Side, a mansion in Manhattan, Palm Beach home, and New Mexico ranch, according to the suit. The victim says she was raped by Epstein several times, starting in 1997. She is seeking financial compensation from the $577 million estate. Epstein's estate wants the plaintiffs to be compensated from an optional out-of-court claim settlement program. Prosecutors are still conducting an investigation to identify those who helped Epstein snare his victims. He and Trump, who were pals within the same social circles for many years, had a falling out of a real estate dispute, the Daily News reports. I was not a fan of his, that I can tell you, Trump said after Epstein was arrested last year. Well, I've talked about Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell in episode 60, and there's another connection between Trump and Epstein, and that is elite Zionism. Trump is the most Israel-controlled president in American history, and the most elite Zionist-controlled president in American history. And the Sabatoon Frankist cult, which runs Israel, for a tiny cult to control billions of people, they need cements bind people in positions of power and influence together. One of them is paedophilia and Satanism, which as I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel, part one, is a fundamental part of life for Sabatine Frankists. And another is elite Zionism. I've talked about Jeffrey Epstein's connections to elite Zionism and Israel in All Roads Lead to Israel, part two. In terms of Donald Trump, the reason Trump is so controlled by Israel and elite Zionists goes back a long way talked in episode 57, part one, about the Mueller report investigating the claim of Russian collusion in the election campaigns of 2016 and Russian hacking of the election in America and the findings of that report that there was no Russian collusion, which is quite obvious and some of us said so at the time. And I talked in episode 60 about why Russia is being targeted. There is, however, a Russian connection that... Mueller did not and would not investigate. He wouldn't dare. And that is the 
connection between Trump and the Russian mafia, the Russian elite Zionist mafia in New York. And just a bit of history. Russian and Soviet Zionists and associated organized crime networks moved to New York in large numbers, particularly to a place called Brighton Beach in Brooklyn. And this movement became known as Little Odessa. In 1975, when the Jackson-Vanik Law was passed, which allowed Jewish movement from the Soviet Union, what we now call Russia, of course, into America. And the Jackson of the Jackson-Vanik Law was Henry Jackson or Henry Scoop Jackson, an elite Zionist neoconservative for what a neoconservative is, see episode 60. And two of Jackson's assistants at this time were Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz, both of which I mentioned in episode 60 in relation to an organization they were part of, which produced a document in September 2000 calling for a series of regime changes and invasions of countries which have played out since an American Israel-controlled organization. Going back even further, in 1897, a guy called Jacob Schiff, the Schiff family are very close to the Rothschilds, who are the innermost core of the Sabbatean Frankist cult. Jacob Schiff was fundamental in President Grover Cleveland's decision to change the immigration bill to allow movement for Zionist and communist Jews from Russia. And this vast influx of Russian Zionists to New York after 1975 has become known as the Russian Mafia. The most well-known leader of this mafia in America has been a guy called Marat Balagula and the overall kingpin is the Ukrainian-born and Moscow-based Semyon Mogilevich and he was jailed, although he would become massively powerful afterwards for exploiting Jewish people leaving Russia in this way I'm talking about. He'd make them a deal to sell assets at market value and for the proceeds and then just keep the money for himself. And Mogilevich has been described by US and European law enforcement as the boss of bosses of global Russian elite Zionist crime syndicates and the FBI's labeled him the most dangerous mobster in the world. And his criminal network involves weapons, trafficking, contract murders, extortion, drug trafficking and prostitution. And Mogilevich is also involved in trafficking of Russian and Ukrainian girls to brothels in Israel. And this Russian mafia has become known as Kosher Nostra. This is a reference to the Italian Sicilian mafia, Cosa Nostra. And New York seems to be a real centre for for all this. Not the only place, but it seems to be a real centre for it. And a guy called Dr. M. Raphael Johnson, a Russian scholar of Russian Orthodox history, author of several books, who completed his doctorate at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln in 1999, focusing on anti-modernist social philosophy, has said, The roots of Jewish organized crime go far back into Tsarist times. Organized crime syndicates assisted Lenin's gangs in bank robberies and the creation of general mayhem. During the so-called revolution, it was difficult, sometimes impossible, to distinguish between Bolshevik ideologues and Jewish organized crime syndicates. They acted in nearly an identical manner. The state of Israel is a major factor in the rise and power of the Jewish mafia. Jewish drug dealers, child porn pushers and slave traders are free from prosecution in Israel. Israel does not consider these to be crimes so long as the victims are non-Jews. The Israeli state will not extradite its citizens to non-Jewish countries and therefore Jewish murderers can quite easily escape punishment in Israel. 
And there's a couple of points in that quote I want to pick up. First of all, I'm not talking about Jewish people in general. I'm talking about elite Zionism. Not regular Zionism, elite Zionism. What you might call political, corporate, military intelligence Zionism. And the Jewish population of America is fractional. And only a certain number of that fraction will be elite Zionists. Extreme elite Zionism is basically a direct expression of Sabbatian Frankism. And then you've got the cult itself, which is even tinier in number. And a lot of elite Zionists will not even know about the cult. They'll just be Jewish, so they'll naturally be focused on the interests of Israel. Or they will buy the propaganda that Israel has a right to self-determination. And basically that Israel has the right to claim land wherever it wants to. And they'll believe the greater Israel claim which I talk about in episode 1, All Roads Lead to Israel, part 1. Only a certain number, those that you might call extreme elite Zionists, will know about the cult. So it's a tiny number of people we're talking about here, not the mass of the Jewish people in America, which is fractional. story continues. In 1971, Trump moved to Manhattan and became involved in large construction projects. In 73, the Justice Department accused him of violating the Fair Housing Act in 39 of his properties. From the early 1970s until 1986, Trump's illegal advisor was a guy called Roy Cohn, an elite Zionist. Roy Cohn was also involved in the McCarthyism communist case in the 1950s. Cohn also represented Rupert Murdoch, elite Zionist, and a Squire magazine described Cohn in an article called Don't Mess With Roy Cohn as the most feared lawyer in New York and a ruthless master of dirty tricks with more than one mafia don or speed down. There's an article here on CNBC.com from September 27th last year called FBI Releases Files on President Trump's Late Lawyer Roy Cohn. The FBI released nearly 750 pages of documents from the Bureau's file on the late Roy Cohn, the controversial high-progressive lawyer whose high-profile clients included President Donald Trump when Trump was a fledgling real estate mogul in New York City. Whereas by Roy Cohn, Trump has been quoted lamenting when he was faced with political and legal pressures. Cohn was famous and infamous for his work for Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin in the 1950s investigating suspected infiltration by communists in U.S. government agencies, as well as his role prosecuting Soviet spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed for stealing American atomic secrets. In the Rosenberg case, Cohn later admitted to conversations with the trial judge outside of the presence of the Rosenberg lawyers, a serious ethical breach by both Cohn and the judge. The Big Apple Bon Vivant Cohn was also an associate of the admitted Republican dirty trickster Roger Stone, another Trump ally. Stone currently is under indictment for lying to Congress, witness tampering and obstructing justice, charges related to his alleged efforts to get WikiLeaks to release emails stolen from Democrats during the 2016 presidential campaign. He pleaded not guilty in that case. The release of the FBI's Cohn files comes on the heels of a new documentary that uses Trump's quote, Where's My Roy Cohn, as its title. The vast majority of the FBI files include details of an investigation into Cohn for perjury, conspiracy and obstruction of justice in connection with the grand jury probe of an alleged $50,000 bribe Cohn paid then-chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan to keep several stock swindlers from being indicted in 1959. Cohn was found not guilty after a trial in that case in 1964. 
A number of the files were sent directly to J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI's director at the time, would reflect the Bureau's painstaking efforts to acquire information about trips by Kane to Las Vegas in 1959 and other evidence in connection with the bribery case. One memo that was sent in July 1962 to both Hoover and then-Attorney General Robert Kennedy details the claim by a source of the FBI's Las Vegas office. The source said that gamblers in that city worried about extreme pressure being applied by the federal government on the Nevada gambling industry had approached the Justice Department's criminal division chief to determine whether he would trade Las Vegas for Roy Cohn. The Justice Department's division chief flatly rejected that approach, the source told the FBI. A small part of the files released include a letter that Cohn sent Hoover in 1969 when Cohn was being prosecuted of other federal criminal charges for which he ultimately was acquitted. Cohn's clients after his acquittal included Trump media mogul Rupert Murdoch, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York, and Carmine Galante and Fat Tony Salerno, suspected mafia chieftains. He also numbered among his celebrity friends President Ronald Reagan's wife Nancy. The Washington Post in 2016 described an early meeting between Trump and Cohn in 1971 at a hotspot called La Club. Trump introduced himself to Cohn, who was sitting at a nearby table and sought advice. How should he and his father respond to Justice Department allegations that their company had systematically discriminated against black people seeking housing, the Post reported. My viewers tell them to go to hell, Cohn said, according to the Post, and fight the thing in court. Cohn eventually filed a $100 million countersuit against the Justice Department for its allegations against Trump's company. After that suit failed, Trump settled the Justice Department's claims out of court. Cohn was one of two personal lawyers for Trump to be disbarred, in his case for a range of misconduct. The second was Trump's more recent attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, who is serving a three-year federal prison term for crimes that include ones related to a hush money payment to porn star Story Daniels to keep her quiet about an alleged sexual tryst with Trump in the mid-2000s. Trump denies having sex with Daniels or with other women. Playboy model Karen McDougall, who received another hush money payout before the 2016 election that was facilitated by Cohen. A relative of Cohn's wrote a column for Politico magazine entitled, I'm Roy Cohn's cousin. He would have detested Trump's Russia fawning. My cousin Roy Marcus Cohn, counsel to Senator Joe McCarthy, consigliere to mafia bosses, mentor to Donald Trump, had almost no principles. The column by David Marcus said, He smeared Jews even though he was Jewish. He tarred Democrats even though he was a Democrat. He persecuted gay people even though he was gay. Yet throughout his life he held fast to uncertainty. Russia and America were enemies, Marcus wrote. Roy often told me that the Kremlin blamed the US for Russia's failure to prosper so Russian leaders were bent on destroying our democracy. If Roy had lived another 30 years, I'm sure he'd be pleased to learn that his protégé was elected president, but I'm equally sure Roy would be appalled by Trump's obsequious devotion to ex-KGB officer Vladimir Putin. Well, Trump is not devoted to Putin. As I explained in episode 57, in episode 60 I explain why Russia is being demonized by America and Britain. The story continues. Trump has borrowed enormous amounts of money from banks and it could have been game over for him financially. He built casinos in Atlantic City and bought the Taj Mahal Casino and Hotel in Atlantic City which is known as the Trump Taj Mahal, but is now the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, Atlantic City. By the start of the 1990s, he owed $4 billion to banks, and he would have had to pay back $800 million on top of that. A real estate lawyer who represented Trump during this time was Alan Pomerantz, and he later said the reason Trump was not foreclosed on and sent into colossal bankruptcy was because he was worth more to them alive than dead, or alive than bankrupt. Maybe another way of phrasing it. Trump approached Rothschild Inc. Interestingly, to help him get out of the financial nightmare he was in. 
and a guy called Wilbur Ross, who would be named U.S. Commerce Secretary at the time of Trump's election as president, who was involved with Rothschild Inc., helped him out. Another Zionist investor called Carl Icahn also helped Trump by buying the Taj Mahal Casino. And Icahn was named Special Advisor to the President on Regulatory Reform. A bankruptcy lawyer who advised Trump through the Atlantic City Casino situation was elite Zionist David M. Friedman, who later became U.S. Ambassador to Israel and who oversaw the movement of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which I talk about, which I talk about in episode 17. Another legal guy, Jason Greenblatt, chief legal officer to Donald Trump and Trump Organization, also assisted Trump financially. And Trump made Greenblatt as assistant to the president and special representative for international negotiations, including Israel-Palestine. Obviously including Israel-Palestine. And even Israeli newspaper Haaretz has reported on the elite Zionist Russian connection. This article was published on May 23, 2018, and it is called Know Your Oligarch, A Guide to the Jewish Billionaires in the Trump-Russia Probe. The special prosecutor's probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 election offers an unsettling journey for anyone steeped in Russian Jewry and the transition from the repression of the former Soviet Union to the relative freedoms in the Russian Federation. Of 10 billionaires with Kremlin ties who found political contributions to U.S. President Donald Trump and a number of top Republican leaders, at least five are Jewish. There's Len Blavatnik, the dual British-American citizen who dumped huge amounts of cash on Republican candidates in the last election cycle, much of it funneled through his myriad investment firms. The same Len Blavatnik funds scholarships for IDF veterans and who is friends with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Alexander Shustrovich is the president of IMG Artists, a titan among impresarios who gave Trump's inauguration committee a cool $1 million. He arrived in 1977 with his penniless family in New York at age 11, fleeing Soviet persecution of Jews. This is this movement into New York I mentioned earlier. The list goes on. We explore some of the names below. But first, what was going on in the Soviet Union as it headed towards collapse in the late 1980s that led to the proliferation of Jewish names among its oligarch class? Let's talk about that. Not all oligarchs are Jewish, of course, not the majority, but there is a significant number, said Mark Levin, the CEO of the National Coalition Supporting Eurasian Jewry, who joined its predecessor, the National Council on Soviet Jewry, in 1980 as a staffer. They were in the right place at the right time. And then later in the article, it talks about some of the businessmen with Soviet Jewish roots who have been named in stories about the Russia-Trump investigation. Leonard Blavatnik gave Trump's election cycle in 2016 more than $6 million, virtually all to Republicans after a pattern of relatively modest donations to both political parties. Long-standing business ties to Victor Vexelberg, the oligarch allegedly linked to secret payments to Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. Blavatnik donated $12,700 last year to a Republican Party legal fund that has helped to pay Trump's lawyers in the Russia inquiry. Jewish ties, he has served on the board of Tel Aviv University, the Center for Jewish History in the 92nd Street Y. His family funds a Kolod Shabbat-run food bank and warehouse in Kiryat Malachi, or Malachi in Israel, which sends monthly shipments of food to 5,000 poor families in 25 Israeli cities. He is friends with Netanyahu and has been questioned by police in connection with the investigation into gifts the Prime Minister allegedly received from wealthy benefactors. He funds scholarships for Israeli army soldiers. In 2017, Israeli police investigated whether Prime Minister Netanyahu was involved behind the scenes in the sale of Channel 10 to Leonard Blavatnik, a partner in RGE Communications, which owns 51% of Channel 10. Andrew Intrater, 
55. Her cousin to Vexelberg, who has a Jewish father but does not identify as Jewish. In Traitor, a US citizen, is the CEO of Columbus Nova, the investment company with close ties to Vexelberg's Renova. An SEC filing from 2007 lists In Traitor as the chairman of the board of Cablecom, a Moscow area cable TV provider. Columbus Naval funnel payments from Renova to Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer. Intrator also donated a quarter of a million dollars to Trump's inaugural committee. Intrator, the child of a Holocaust survivor, has given more than half a million dollars to the University of Southern California's Shoah Foundation and has donated to the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation Committee. Intrator's brother Frederick, the design manager for Columbus Naval, bought up a batch of domain names with associations with the alt-right alternative right in the summer of 2016 when support for then candidate trump on the far right was rising and get out the vote drives were intensifying frederick and trento said he made the purchases without andrew's knowledge and later regretted it allowing the url names to wither to conclude that i support white supremacy or anti-semitism is unreasonable taking into consideration that i am a jew and son of a holocaust survivor frederick and Trator said Shostrovich, a U.S. citizen, traveled to Moscow in 1989, a year after graduating from Harvard and immediately became a player in the media there, starting scientific publications. He unsuccessfully sought to get his company, Pleiades Group, into the $12 billion deal that sold Soviet nuclear fuel to the United States. He is now CEO of IMG Artists, a company that manages talent in classical music and dance. Shostrovich gave $1 million to Trump's inaugural committee. Notably, his attempt to give the George W. Bush campaign a quarter of a million dollars in 2000 was rejected in part because of his ties at the time to Russia's government. Shostrovich arrived in New York at 11 in 1977 with his family who did not have enough money to buy food. His father, Evgeny, pushed out work in Russia as a chemist because of his hopes of emigrating. He joined Kodak in Rochester, New York and soon rose to prominence in his field for a period in 1986-87, Evgeny Shostrovich was one of the faces of the Soviet Jewry movement as he became an ardent advocate for the right of his brother, also named Alexander, to emigrate from the former Soviet Union. Simon Kukes. Kukes, a U.S. citizen, left the Soviet Union in 77, settling in the Houston area. A chemist, he was for a period an academic and then worked in the Texas oil industry. He returned to Russia and became an executive in the post-Soviet oil industry there. In 2003, he became head of the Yukos oil company after another Jewish oligarch, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, was jailed by Russian leader Vladimir Putin for tax evasion and theft, but mostly most observers think for funding opposition parties. The Guardian in 2003 uncovered CIA documents linking Kukes to bribery charges which he has denied. Prior to his year-long gig, helming Yukos Kukes was from 1998 to 2003 the president of TNK, another oil company, whose principal stakeholders were Provatnik and Vexelberg. In 2012, when he headed the Russian arm of Hess, Forbes reported that Kukes former chauffeur who had risen through the company rats was a Russian mafia boss. The man denied the charges, but Kukes pushed him out of the company. Last year, this was... 2017. Last year, 2017, Kukes was a US-based CEO of NAFTA, a consulting firm for investors in Russia's energy sector. NAFTA's website has since been scrubbed. With no major history of GOP, in other words, Republican Party, giving, Kukes suddenly funneled $285,000 into the Trump re-election effort, much of it after June 2016, when Russian interest in the possibility of a Trump presidency intensified. Kukes does not have apparent formal ties with the organized Jewish community, although he tells interviewers he left the former Soviet Union because he was Jewish. In 2015, he bought a 12.5% share in Leverate, an Israeli-founded company that develops brokerage software. Tech companies are, and the tech industry is massively taken off in Israel, and there's a reason for that which I'll explain in episode 59, 2.2, or All Roads Lead to Israel, part 2. There's a new Silicon Valley in Israel.
and I talk about the agenda behind technology in episodes 10 and 11. Yuri Milner, 56. Milner never fled the Soviet Union. His parents still live in Moscow. He was the first non-emigre from the Soviet Union to attend Wharton Business School and was for years involved in Russian banking before entering tech. He is well known as a Silicon Valley investor, owning one of the most luxurious houses in ritzy Los Altos Hills, valued in 2011 at $100 million. Last year, it was revealed through leaked documents that Russia's government funded substantive states in Twitter and Facebook that were for a time held by its company DST Global. In 2013, Milner joined Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Google's Sergei Brin, and 23andMe's Anne Wojcicki in establishing the multi-million dollar breakthrough prize for scientists. After last year's revelations, Milner scoffed at the notion that Russia was ploughing money into social media efforts to influence elections, noting that he never sought a seat on the board of the companies he invested in. Milner in 2015 invested $850,000 in Cadre, a real estate startup launched by Yared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, elite Zionist, and Kushner's brother Josh. Milner has said that he met Yared Kushner only once. Kushner's stake in Cadre was one of many that he initially failed to disclose when he became an advisor to his father-in-law. Milner attends a synagogue when he is in Moscow. Somewhere along the line, he appears to have acquired Israeli citizenship. Speaking with Forbes in 2017, after the magazine named him one of the 100 greatest living business minds, Milner said he was humbled in order to be the only Russian or Israeli citizen on the list. I mentioned David Friedman just now, and he and Jason Greenblatt co-chaired Trump's Israel Advisory Committee. Friedman is head of the American Friends of Betau Institutions, which donates $2 million a year to illegal Jewish settlements of Betau and the occupied Palestinian West Bank. This is in addition to the Jewish National Fund, which buys up land for Jewish-only settlements. What is that but racism? And Yared Kushner, who I mentioned just now, has donated to American Friends of Betau. And when you look at it, you've got Sheldon Adelson, Trump's biggest funder, who donated $82 million to Trump's election campaign elite Zionist, and you've got George Soros, elite Zionist, funding the progressive movement and the woke mentality, which has completely dominated the Democratic Party in America. And both are elite Zionists, which answer to the elite Zionist hierarchy, extreme elite Zionism, as I call it, which is basically the Zionist expression of Sabatian Frankism. I talk about George Soros in episode 3 and episode 46 Here's an article about Sheldon Adelson from New York Magazine, published on September the 9th, 2015. In a few weeks, when the nuclear deal Barack Obama negotiated with Iran comes before Congress, it's all but certain that not a single Republican will vote in support of it. I talk about Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal in episode 16. With the possible exception of Maine's Susan Collins, who has yet to reveal her position, each of the 246 Republicans in the House and 53 Republicans in the Senate has indicated his or her opposition to the deal. Not that a mere vote could possibly express the intensity of even that unanimous opposition, or the fervid support for Israel that lies behind it. It is a fundamental betrayal of the security of the United States and of our closest allies, first and foremost Israel, Texas Senator and GOP presidential candidate Ted Cruz has said. Cruz's 16 Republican primary opponents have denounced the deal in similar terms. One of them, Mike Huckabee, has gone so far as to argue that Obama will take the Israelis and march them to the door of the oven. American Jews are not hardliners on Israel. Obama won 69% of Jewish voters in 2012, even as American conservatives accused him of purposefully undermining the country's security and status in the region. 
Indeed, according to a 2013 Pew study, only one in three American Jews feel a strong emotional attachment to the Jewish state. But over the past 30 years, and especially the last decade, the GOP's attachment to Israel has become remarkably fierce, to an extent that is basically unprecedented in modern American politics. On issue after issue, from military aid to settlement policy, the GOP now offers Israel unconditional and unquestioning support, so much so that some Republicans now liken the country to America's 51st state. This is before Trump came into office and I've said before that America especially now but in general is a satellite government of Israel the article continues the person most responsible for this development is the multi-billionaire casino magnate and Republican mega-donor Sheldon Adelson Adelson who grew up poor in the Dorchester section of Boston and never graduated from college made and lost several fortunes before he struck it rich for good in 1979 by developing the Las Vegas computer trade show Comdex with a few partners. Ten years later, Adelson and his partners spent $128 million to buy Las Vegas Sands Hotel and Casino, which he used as a toehold to steadily expand his and the company's gaming operations. Today, the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, of which Adelson is 82, still the chairman and CEO, is a publicly traded company with massive hotels and casinos in Las Vegas, Pennsylvania, China and Singapore. According to Forbes, Adelson, who owns a majority of Sands' stock, is worth about $26 billion. He is said to keep close tabs on where he ranks on the magazine's listing of billionaires, which is calculated daily, mentioning to associates when he has moved up, although his ranking has slipped a bit in recent years. Once in the top 10, he is currently 18th on that list. Adelson has been known to boast that he is still the richest Jew in the world. As such, he is unaccustomed to being ignored. Among the 17 candidates currently vying for the Republican presidential nomination, most are also competing in the Adelson primary, the hotly contested race for the donor's heart, which runs through Israel. Adelson's support for the Jewish state is so intense that he opposes American efforts to broker a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, arguing that the Palestinians are an invented people whose purpose is to destroy Israel rather than negotiate with Iran. Adelson has called for a preemptive nuclear strike against the Islamic Republic. Well, a few things there. One, the idea of a two-state solution being suggested either comes from someone ignorant or someone who knows that the idea is just a holding position, basically. Because the idea is that there's only one state, Israel, as part of the Greater Israel Agenda, which I talk about in episode 60. And, of course, Trump has attacked Iran with the attack on Qasem Soleimani, which I also talk about in episode 60. Article continues, The stakes of getting on its good side are enormous. In 2012, Adelson spent $20 million supporting Newt Gingrich, single-handedly keeping him afloat during the primaries and doing great damage to Mitt Romney in the process. Then, after Gingrich finally fell, Adelson showed out $30 million to plump up Romney. All told, Adelson reportedly spent $100 million against Obama in 2012. In 2016, says one prominent Republican operative, Every candidate thinks, I can either be the Gingrich of the cycle, meaning Sheldon could give me oxygen, or I don't want to be on the opposite side of who is Gingrich is this cycle. They want to benefit from Sheldon's largesse and make sure no one else benefits from it. Our score continues. Marco Rubio, a Republican candidate, reportedly phones Adelson every other week. Rubio calls and says, Hey, did you see this speech? Did you see my floor statement on Iran? What do you think I should do about this issue? Says one person close to Adelson. It's impressive. Rubio is persistent. Lindsey Graham is said to call almost as often. 
When Scott Walker took his first trip to Israel in May, he did so aboard one of Adelson's airplanes. Adelson loves the attention, but with such a crowded 2016 field, even he occasionally gets worn out. After Ben Carson paid him a visit in Las Vegas earlier this year, Adelson complained to a friend, there are too many candidates. Naturally, there are complaints about Adelson too. The New York Times' Thomas Friedman has written that Adelson personifies everything that is poisoning our democracy in Israel's today. Those who receive money from Adelson typically do so only after meeting with him personally, and he has been known to abruptly and capriciously cut off funding for an event as minor as a quote in a newspaper article that he didn't like. And you have to be persuadable. In addition to lacking an organisation, Adelson lacks advisors, or at least ones who advise he heeds. Although he frequently kibitzes with leading lights of the conservative and pro-Israel worlds. Adelson, as one of his interlocutors says, does more talking than listening. While Trump boasts that his daughter converted to Judaism and blasts Obama as the worst enemy of Israel, his knowledge of the Middle East is sufficiently shallow that Adelson apparently believes Trump would not be an effective ally of the Jewish state. Well, that obviously didn't play out. Interesting article here in the Jewish Standard from November 2017. Steve Bannon's speech at the Zohar Gala. Stephen Bannon, the former chief strategist for President Donald Trump, calls himself a Christian Zionist at the Zionist Organization of America's annual dinner. He also praised Republican Jewish megadonor Sheldon Adelson for his help in guiding Trump through a sexual assault scandal. Bannon, at what may have been his first speech at a Jewish event since becoming associated with Trump last year, received a standing ovation and loud applause throughout his speech on Sunday in New York. He was one of many current and former Trump administration officials to attend the event, including Ambassador to Israel David Friedman, who also spoke, former Press Secretary Sean Spicer and Sebastian Gorka, a former advisor to Trump who has ties to the Hungarian far right. I'm not a moderate, I'm a fighter, Bannon said, and that's why I'm proud to stand with the State of Israel. That's why I'm proud to be a Christian Zionist. The article continues, The ZOA, which takes hawkish positions on Israel, has been outspoken in its support of Trump as compared to other large Jewish organizations. Its lineup of speakers Sunday included several Republicans, including Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton and a couple of centrists, legal scholar Alan Dershowitz and former Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. Alan Dershowitz is a lawyer who helped Epstein get a plea deal, which meant that he spent less time in prison than he would have done. The article continues. Bannon shepherded the final months of Trump's presidential campaign and served as one of his chief advisors until August. He supports what he calls economic nationalist policies, including limits on immigration and wariness of international agreements. He is the chairman of Breitbart News, a hardline right-wing publication. Speaking to the ZOA, Bannon said Trump's election victory would not have come without one other person besides Donald Trump, Sheldon Adelson. That's an interesting quote there because we get, we're given the idea that Trump funded his own campaign and he was a renegade and he was going against the system. I talk about that in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 1. Sheldon Adelson alone proves that idea wrong. Never mind all the other names I've already named and I'm going to name and connected with Trump. Elite Zionists. He was brought to power because it suits the elite Zionist Sabatier and Frankist cult for him to be in place. The article goes on. In particular, Bannon said Adelson's advice helped Trump overcome the release of the Access Hollywood tape in which Trump boasted about sexually assaulting a woman. Sheldon Adelson did not cut and run, Bannon said, regarding the time after the scandal broke. Sheldon Adelson had Donald Trump's back. He offered guidance and counsel and wisdom of how to get through it. He was there for Donald Trump about how to dig down deep and it was his guidance and his wisdom that helped us get through it. The article continues, Liberal Jewish groups protested Bannon's appointment to the Trump White House last year because of Breitbart's links to the alt-right, a loose network that includes white supremacists. 
Liberal Jewish groups protested Bannon's appointment to the Trump White House last year because of Breitbart's links to the alt-right, a loose network that includes white supremacists. Bannon has called Breitbart a platform for the alt-right, but he has disavowed white supremacists on a few occasions and said he is not a white nationalist. A group of protesters from If Not Now, a Jewish group that opposes Israel's West Bank occupation, demonstrated against Bannon's speech outside the dinner, which took place at the Grand Hyatt. The group also protested the event last year when Bannon was invited, but did not attend. The crowd at the dinner warmly welcomed the Trump advisers and they touted the president's record on Israel. In his address, Friedman harshly criticised the Obama administration's Israel record while praising Trump's. In particular, he lambasted the UN Security Council resolution in December that condemned Israeli West Bank settlements. The United States abstained, declining to veto the measure. We came into office on the heels of perhaps the greatest betrayal of Israel by a sitting president in American history, Friedman said. I hope you agree with me that we have turned a page since the dark days of last December. Gone are the days when the United Nations bashes Israel with impunity. The article continues. Friedman also said Trump's eye to eye with Israel's government on opposing the 2015 agreement on Iran's nuclear program, which Israel views as dangerous for its security. Referencing a terror attack this year, that would be 2017, in the West Bank, he said Trump is more sympathetic to Israeli settlements than previous administrations, that we avoided using the word settlement. And he said Trump's peace plan, which is still being formulated, will prioritize Israeli security. Speaking at a news conference before the dinner, ZOA President Morton Klein criticized the Trump peace plan, saying that he feels negotiations are useless because the Palestinian Authority is not interested in peace. Well, the Israeli Authority, the Israeli regime is not interested in peace. He compared the PA to Nazis and slammed it for providing stipends to families of terrorists. Nazis, that's an interesting comparison, given that Palestinians live in an open-air concentration camp called Gaza and the West Bank. The goal is not statehood, the goal is Israel's destruction, Klein said. They're nothing but a bunch of Arab Nazis who want to murder Jews. The Israeli regime being a bunch of Nazis who want to murder Palestinians, with the goal of Palestine's destruction would be more accurate. Bannon, in his speech, framed Trump's Israel record as part of fighting Islamic terrorism in the Middle East. He said two of Trump's top priorities coming into the White House were moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. That's happened. A promise Trump repeatedly made but has yet to fulfill, while well, he did, and decertifying the agreement on Iran's nuclear program, which Trump did last month. This is October 2017. He said, destroy the physical caliphate of ISIS, Des designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, decertify or renegotiate the Iran deal and move the embassy to Jerusalem, Bannon said of Trump. Later, he called Trump the strongest supporter of Israel since Ronald Reagan, though Reagan as president was not unequivocally supportive of Israel. And here's an another interesting article about Sheldon Adelson. Billionaire Gingrich backer Adelson regrets he served in the US instead of Israeli military. Billionaire Sheldon Adelson, who along with his wife has donated $10 million in recent weeks, this was published in January 2012. To Republican presidential hopeful Newt Gingrich has said he wishes he had served in the Israeli army instead of the US military and that he wants his son to grow up to be a sniper for the IDF. Interesting comment that I've talked about the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. New definition of anti-Semitism in episode 28 and why it's merely a means of providing cover for elite Zionists and, and Sabbatian Frankist cult agenda. And one of the criteria on the definition cited as an example of anti-Semitism is claiming that Jewish people or a Jewish person has more loyalty to Israel than America. Well, what Adelson said there is clearly an example of that. And why would some Jewish people, if they believe that Israel is their homeland, it's not. There's no real basis for that. Israel is a fake state set up after World War II. But if Jewish people believe that, why would some Jewish people not be more loyal to Israel than their home country, given that they think that's their homeland in Israel? The article goes on. 
the article continues, Gingrich himself has also doubled down on anti-Palestinian comments, asserting during a CNN debate last night that they were invented in the 1970s. And Adelson said, I am not Israeli. The uniform that I wore in the military, unfortunately, was not an Israeli uniform. It was an American uniform. Although my wife was in the IDF and one of my daughters was in the IDF, our two little boys, one of whom will be Mark bar mitzvah tomorrow hopefully he'll come back his hobby is shooting and he'll come back and be a sniper for the idf all we care about is being good zionists being good citizens of israel because even though i am not israeli born israel is in my heart said adelson adelson is a major backer of israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu and has been a major factor in pushing for confrontation with iran his support for gingrich has given rise to speculation that the latter has ever more strident anti-palestinian positions including that palestinians are an invented people are inspired by that support the revelations also come amid a fierce debate in Washington about whether some supporters of Israel can be described as Israel firsters. Absolutely they can. Clearly Adelson's one of them. In addition to calling Palestinians invented people, Gingrich has vowed to send the CIA to hunt down Palestinian prisoners freed by Israel. In a Republican candidate debate in Florida, Gingrich doubled down on his comments that the Palestinians were an invented people alleging that they were invented as recently as the 1970s. He also called on Palestinians to give up their right of return. This is from the CNN transcript to the debate interviewer. Speaker Gingrich, you got into a little hot water when you said the Palestinians were an invented people. Gingrich, it was technically an invention of the late 1970s and it was clearly so. Prior to that, there were Arabs. Many of them were either Syrian, Lebanese, or Egyptian, or Jordanian. There are a couple of simple things here. There were 11 rockets fired into Israel in November. Now imagine in Duval County that 11 rockets hit from your neighbor. How many of you would be for a peace process, and how many of you would say, you know, that looks like an act of war? Yeah, this is what you get from these Zionists and Israel firsters. You get a claim that rockets came over from Palestine to Israel when Palestine is hitting Israel with the equivalent of a pop gun compared to Israel's state-of-the-art weaponry and genocide of the Palestinians. It doesn't really weigh up, does it? And just when it looks like there might be some peace between the two, a rocket attack or an attack of some kind comes over from Palestine to Israel every time. And Israel uses that as an example that Palestine doesn't want peace, but people of Palestine do. And what's the chances that those attacks are not manipulated to allow Israel to continue attacking Palestine. The quote goes on. You have leadership unequivocally, and Governor Romney is exactly right. The leadership of Hamas says not a single Jew will remain. We are not having a peace negotiation then. This is war by another form. On the first day that I'm president, if I do become president, I will sign an executive order directing the State Department to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to send the signal we're with Israel. That's exactly what Trump did to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because it's not the presidents, it's not the leaders calling the shots, it's this elite Zionist network answering ultimately to the Sabatine Frankist cult. Interesting article here in The Guardian from February 2019. Pro-Israel donors spent over $22 million on lobbying and contributions in 2018. This is talking about, partly about at least, claims by Ilian Omar, a Democratic representative in Minnesota. And there's many things I would disagree with from her mouth, not least because she's an expression of the woke, progressive Democrat mentality, which has taken over the Democratic Party. And she's pushing the Green New Deal, which is changing human society in the very way that I've talked about in pay-per-view, using human-caused climate change as the excuse to do so. I talked about the Green New Deal in episode 51, and it's very similar to Agenda 21, which I talk about, and Agenda 2030, the offshoot of Agenda 21, which I also talk about in that 
episode. I talk about Agenda 2030 in more detail in episode 36. Anyway, the article says, Pro-Israel lobbyists and donors spent more than $22 million on lobbying and campaign contributions during the 2018 election cycle. The same or similar Israel-aligned groups and donors have spent hundreds of millions of dollars in recent decades, and that money poured into American politics through a variety of channels, according to the non-profit, non-partisan Center for Responsive Politics. The CRP uses federal election records to track campaign finance spending and makes its data available on the Open Secret site. The Guardian examined campaign finance data after Muslim Minnesota Congresswoman Eliana Omar ignited a controversy with two tweets claiming pro-Israel lobby money influenced American political policy and discourse. Well, like I said, there's a lot that I would disagree with from Eliana Omar, but on this point, she's absolutely spot on. The claim led to broad accusations of anti-Semitism, what doesn't these days, from Democrats and Republicans. Omar later apologized, all you've got to do these days is open your mouth and it's racist. Omar later apologised but also stood her ground when it came to highlighting the influence of lobbyists comparing influential pro-Israel lobby group, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, APAC, to the National Rifle Association and the fossil fuel industry. The data examined by The Guardian suggests that the pro-Israeli lobby is highly active and spends heavily to influence US policy, though at levels far below those of many big business sectors. But then a lot of big business is owned by elite Zionists. I've not observed many other countries that have a comparable level of activity, at least in domestic lobbying data, said Dan Orbort, a senior researcher at CRP. Omar incorrectly suggested APAC makes campaign contributions to candidates. However, records show it did spend about $3.5 million lobbying during the 2018 election cycle. In total, pro-Israel lobbying groups spent about $5 million in 2018, the highest tally since tracking began in 1998. APAC spent the most of the lobbying groups and is known for funding junket trips to Israel for freshman lawmakers and senators as well as state legislators. All roads lead to Israel. APAC also lobbied against the Iran nuclear deal in 2015 and supported the Trump administration's withdrawal from the agreement. An APAC spokesperson did not return requests for comment. Separately, pro-Israeli foreign agents registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which can include lobbyists working on behalf of the Israeli government. Companies, political parties and other organizations spent about $46.3 million in 2017 and 2018, behind only Japan and South Korea. However, only about $2.1 million of that total funded political activity, while $44.2 million was dedicated to tourism and other industries. Pro-Israel groups and individuals also contributed just under $50 million to US politicians' campaigns during the 2018 cycle, the highest amount since the 1990 cycle. The J Street PAC, a progressive pro-Israel lobby that advocates for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, contributed the most at $4.03 million. The non-partisan NORPAC contributed $1.1 million, while the Republican Jewish Coalition contributed about $502,000. J Street senior political advisor Ben Schneider did not comment specifically on what the lobby gets in return for its investment, but said the high level of contributions to the lobby indicates support for a diplomacy-first Middle East policy. What that demonstrates is that there's momentum behind a pragmatic pro-diplomacy moderate approach to the Middle East and to the Israel-Palestine issue, he said. The pro-Israel lobby's contributions reached a majority of U.S. politicians. In 2018, it spent money on 269 representatives and 57 senators' campaigns and gave to Democrats at a 2 to 1 ratio. Among the top 2018 recipients were New Jersey Democrat Senator Bob Menendez, $548,507, Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz, $352,894, Democratic Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, $230,342, Democratic Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin, $229,896, and Democratic Candidate for Senate 
Cabinet in Texas. Beto O'Rourke, who received $226,690. Democratic leaders who criticised Omar and demanded an apology also received a high level of contributions from the pro-Israel lobby. Elliot Engel, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee on which Omar sits, received $1.07 million in the pro-Israel lobby during his career, more than he's received from any other industry. In a Tuesday statement, he said it's shocking to hear a member of Congress invoke the anti-Semitic trip of Jewish money. Well, there are rich Jews in the world, just as there are rich people in any culture and religion. And some of those use their money for nefarious purposes and for manipulative purposes. Why should Jewish people be any different? Meanwhile, the pro-Israel lobby has contributed $514,000 to Pelosi throughout her career and it's given $1.0 million to Hoyer. It's also highly likely that there's far more pro-Israel lobby money flowing into American politics than is trapped. Absolutely there is. Dark money non-profits are not required to disclose their donors and open secrets does not fully track how mega donors spend their cash. For example, Sheldon Adelson, the largest overall donor in 2018, gave a quarter of a million to the Republican Coalition Jewish Victory Fund, but that donation is not factored into any of open secrets, other contribution and lobbying tallies. At this spending level, the pro-Israel lobby is far more active than PACs aligned with other nations. The US Cuba Democracy Pact's approximately 171,000 in campaign contributions in 2018 was the most among foreign policy packs that are not aligned with Israel. Still, the pro-Israel lobby spends relatively little compared to other industries. The Securities and Investment Lobby contributed $389 million in the 2018 cycle alone, while the real estate industry spent $186 million. It is that level of spending by industry and corporate donors and lobbyists, and its likely influence on American politics, massive influence on American politics, that is the overarching systemic concern when it comes to campaign finance and comments like those by Omar, said Brendan Fisher, director of the Federal Reform Program at the Campaign Legal Center. The U.S. political system is very dependent on money, and in a political system less reliant on money for electoral success, you would not have to be asking those questions, he said. But we absolutely should ask those questions. So now let's look at the Trump administration and people around Trump. Gary Cohn I've mentioned already, Sheldon Adelson I've mentioned, Mike Pompeo, elite Zionist, Secretary of State for Trump, former United States Army officer, director of the CIA from January 2017 until April 2018, Mike Pence, Vice President, elite Zionist, former Governor of Indiana from 2013 to 2017, member of the United States House of Representatives from 2001 to 2013, younger brother of U.S. Representative Greg Pence, Yavid Kushner I've mentioned, son-in-law of Donald Trump, an American investor, real estate developer, and newspaper publisher, currently senior advisor to Trump. Nikki Haley, elite Zionist, American diplomat, businesswoman, author, and politician. Diplomat. <laughs> Love that. Republican Haley is a former South Carolina state legislator, former governor of South Carolina, and former United States ambassador to the United Nations. Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary. Goldman Sachs, elite Zionist owned. Trump came in saying he was going to challenge the banks. And he gives the economy to Goldman Sachs. Jim Mattis was the Secretary of Defense, elite Zionist. Mad Dog Mattis, he was known as. And he said that he likes conflict, he thinks it's fun. Hence his name. He was succeeded by Mark Esper, elite Zionist. Attorney General in the Trump administration, William Barr, elite Zionist. Wilbur Ross, who I mentioned earlier, who helped Trump out with his money problems. Secretary of Commerce, elite Zionist. Former Secretary of Labour for Trump, Alex Acosta, elite Zionist. This is an interesting article. Alex Acosta resigns as US Labour Secretary following Epstein plea deal scandal. This is in The Guardian from July 2019. 
Donald Trump's Labour Secretary Alexander Acosta has resigned following criticism of his handling of a 2008 plea deal, the one I mentioned earlier involving Dershowitz, the lawyer, with the disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein, who is awaiting trial on charges of sex trafficking underage girls. Trump announced the news with Acosta by his side at the White House. Alex Acosta is a great Secretary of Labour, Trump said. Trump announced the news with Acosta by his side at the White House. Alex Acosta is a great Secretary of Labour, Trump said. I hate to see this happen. Trump said he did not ask Acosta to leave the cabinet. Acosta was the U.S. attorney in Miami when he oversaw a non-prosecution agreement for Epstein in 2008, which secretly ended a federal sex abuse investigation involving at least 40 teenage girls that could have landed him behind bars for life. Epstein instead pleaded guilty to state charges and was jailed for 13 months, so he was allowed to leave during the day to work at his luxury office. He paid settlements to victims and is a registered sex offender. Fresh charges of sex trafficking filed against Epstein by federal prosecutors in New York put Acosta's role in the 2008 deal under renewed scrutiny. The charges were brought following an investigation by the Miami Herald. Top Democratic lawmakers and presidential candidates demanded that Acosta resign over his handling of the 2008 plea deal, which a federal judge said violated federal law because Acosta did not notify Epstein's victims of the arrangement. Acosta was further criticized for leading efforts to dramatically cut labor department budgets dedicated to combating human trafficking. Epstein, a well-connected financier, was known for socialising with politicians and royalty with friends who have included Trump, Bill Clinton and, according to court papers, Prince Andrew. Definitely involved in Prince Andrew. None of these people were mentioned in the New York indictment. Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, elite Zionist. Her brother, Eric Prince, a former U.S. Navy SEAL officer, is the founder of Blackwater, which is a notorious private military company in America owned by the Sabatian Frankist cult as the American military is owned by the Sabatine Frankist cult. The military and intelligence networks in general are Betsy DeVos, a elite Zionist, in charge of education. Nikki Haley, elite Zionist, former governor of South Carolina, former ambassador to the United Nations in the Trump administration. Nikki Haley has been a massive supporter of American foreign policy, which is basically Israel's foreign policy, before she was succeeded by Kelly Kraft also an elite Zionist. Heather Newart, UN ambassador, elite Zionist, succeeded by Morgan Ortegas, elite Zionist, spokesperson for the United States State Department. She previously held several government positions, including deputy treasury attache and intelligence analyst at the Treasury Department and public affairs officer at USAID, United States Agency for International Development and worked as national security contributor at Fox News prior to her appointment as State Department spokesperson. She's also an officer in the United States Navy Reserve. Gina Haspel, CIA director, elite Zionist. Scott Pruitt, lawyer, lobbyist, and Republican politician from the state of Oklahoma, administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and he was succeeded by Andrew Wheeler, elite Zionist. And that's just some of the names. So if we look at the Clinton election campaign, J. Robert Pritzker, an American businessman, philanthropist, and politician serving as the 43rd private business owner based in Chicago and a managing partner and co-founder of the Pritzker Group and a member of the Pritzker family which owns the Hyatt Hotel chain, elite Zionist. Donald Sussman, American financier and philanthropist, the founder and chief investment officer of the Paloma Funds and the founder of New China Capital Management, LLC. A member of the Board of Trustees of Carnegie Hall, a member of the Board of Directors of ProPublica, and an honorary trustee of the Ethical Culture Filston School. His company, Palermo Partners, was the largest contributor to the Hillary Clinton 2016 presidential campaign. Elite Zionist. And this whole theme of philanthropy. George Soros is known as a philanthropist. 
So is Bill Gates. So is Sheldon Adelson. And they are elite Zionists funding projects which advance the elite Zionist sabotaging Frankist cult agenda. That's what the philanthropy means in that context. Haim Saban, media proprietor. His production company, TV production company, created Power Rangers. An Israeli-American media proprietor, investor, musician, and producer of records, film, and television. A businessman with interest in financial services, entertainment, and media, and an estimated net worth of $3 billion. Cheryl Saban, an American psychologist, author, television writer, and philanthropist, former senior advisor to the United States Mission to the United Nations. Elite Zionist, just like her husband. Daniel Abraham, elite Zionist, an American businessman, investor, and philanthropist, founder of Thompson Medical, whose main product is SlimFast. He has endowed the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace, and he supports Jewish causes in Florida and Israel. All supporters of Clinton. Dustin Moskowitz, financial supporter of Hillary Clinton, elite Zionist, who co-founded Facebook. Now let's look at a bit of the Obama administration. The senior advisor to Obama, David Axelrod, elite Zionist, American political consultant and analyst, best known for being the chief strategist for Barack Obama's presidential campaigns. After Obama's election, Axelrod was appointed as senior advisor. Larry Summers, elite Zionist, American economist, former vice president of development economics and chief economist at the World Bank, senior U.S. Treasury Department official throughout President Clinton, Bill Clinton's administration, and former director of the National Economic Council for President Obama. Timothy Geithner, former Treasury Secretary, former American Central Banker, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York from 2003 to 2009, elite Zionist. Of course, just going back to earlier, another reason why there are so many elite Zionists in New York is because obviously that's where Wall Street is, the financial district, and the elite Zionist Sabatier and Frankist cult owns the banking system globally. I talk about one of the reasons why that is in, in the previous episode, the origin of the idea of Jewish money, or one of the origins anyway, at least. Paul Volcker, Federal Reserve Chair, under Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan from 79 to 87, and an economic advisor to Obama, heading the Economic Recovery Advisory Board. Elite Zionist. Peter Orzag, elite Zionist, American banker and economist, CEO of Financial Advisory at Lazard, previously the firm's head of North American M&A and global co-head of healthcare. He was behind Obamacare, which was a disaster for Americans. Penny Pritzker, mentioned the Pritzker family just now, former United States Secretary of Commerce, an American billionaire businesswoman, entrepreneur and civic leader. Obama nominated Pritzker as United States Secretary of Commerce, elite Zionist. All these elite, are elite Zionists I'm naming now. Jared Bernstein, Chief Economist and Economic Policy Advisor, elite Zionist. Senior Fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. From 2009 to 2011, Bernstein was the Chief Economist and Economic Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden in the Obama administration. Mary Shapiro, Chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, elite Zionist. Gary Gensler, Chairman of the Commodity Futures Training Commission under Obama. Gensler was the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Domestic Finance and the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Financial Markets, elite Zionist. Kenneth Feinberg, elite Zionist, an American attorney specializing in alternative dispute resolution. Feinberg was appointed special master of the U.S. government's September 11th Victim Compensation Fund and served as the special master for TARP executive compensation. Bernard Bernanke, elite Zionist, an American economist at the Brookings Institution who served two terms as chair of the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States. 
During his tenure as chair, Bernanke oversaw the Federal Reserve's response to the late 2000s financial crisis, which served Wall Street and the financial system, banking system, which the elite Zionist Sabatine Frankist cult owns. Robert Rubin, former Secretary of the Treasury, elite Zionist, an American lawyer, former cabinet member and retired banking executive, served as the 70th United States Secretary of Treasury during the Clinton administration, one of Obama's economic advisors. So, again, that's just a glimpse of the cabinet, but there's an article here about a revelation that a former executive with Citigroup chose Obama's 2008 cabinet WikiLeaks document reveals, or at least suggested names. This is from October 2016 on the World Socialist website, published by the International Committee of the Fourth International. This is not the only place I've seen this, but I've heard about this story ages ago, but this is just an article about it. One month before the presidential election of 2008, the giant Wall Street bank city group submitted to the Obama campaign a list of its preferred candidates for cabinet positions in an Obama administration. The list corresponds almost exactly to the eventual composition of Barack Obama's cabinet. The memorandum revealed by WikiLeaks in a recent document released from the email account of John Podesta, who currently serves as Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, was written by Michael Fruman, who was then an executive with Citigroup and currently serves as U.S. Trade Representative. John Podesta, Michael Fruman, elite Zionists. The email is dated October the 6th, 2008, and bears the subject line lists. It went to Podesta a month before he was named chairman of President-elect Obama's transition team. The email was sent at the height of the financial meltdown that erupted after the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers on September the 15th. Even as Citigroup and its Wall Street counterparts were dragging the US and world economy into its deepest crisis since the 1930s, they remained, as the email shows, the real power behind the facade of American democracy in its electoral process. Froman's list proved remarkably prescient. As it proposed, Robert Gates and Bush Holdover became Secretary of Defense. Eric Holder became Attorney General. Janet Napolitano, elite Zionist, Secretary of Homeland Security. Rahm Emanuel, elite Zionist, White House Chief of Staff. Emanuel's father, Benjamin Emanuel, was a terrorist in the Uruguayan terrorist group that bombed Israel into existence in 1948. Susan Rice, United Nations Ambassador. Aaron Duncan, Secretary of Education. Kathleen Sabelli, Secretary of Health and Human Services, elite Zionist. Peter Orzak, mentioned him just now, Head of the Office of Management and Budget. Eric Shinseki, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And Melody Barnes, Chief of the Domestic Policy Council. For the highly sensitive position of Secretary of the Treasury, three possibilities were presented. Robert Rubin and Rubin's close disciples, Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner. So, all these names, and again, it's only a fraction of the real story. What are the chances of that when the Jewish population of America is fractional? Only some of them are elite Zionists. By that I mean political, corporate, military, intelligent Zionists. And a smaller number again are extreme elite Zionists. Basically an expression of Sabbatine Frankism within Zionism. And then the cult itself, which is again even smaller. What is the statistical chance that throughout successive administrations, not just in America, but in other countries as well, there would be such a devotion to Israel and Zionism. One reason is, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. Joe Biden, former Vice President and elite Zionist, said you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. Absolutely correct. There are a lot of Jewish Zionists. Some, as I think I said earlier, are Zionists because they are Jewish. Some are Zionists because they support Israel and they buy the propaganda. And some are more in the know of the real story, and others are extreme elite Zionists. 
and with at least some knowledge of the Sabbatean Frankist cult, because not all the Zionists I've named, if any at all, will have knowledge of the Sabbatean Frankist cult. When you look at Trump today and what he's done since he's been in power, he's moved the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, as I've said earlier, and this is all connected to the long-time elite Zionist Sabbatean Frankist cult plan to rebuild Solomon's Temple on Temple Mount, where there's currently the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and this is all connected into the long-time plan to have a control system out of Israel. Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is supposed to be an example of anti-Semitism if you mention it, but protocols very accurately describe the world we're now living in and are moving towards, and it's a good question to ask why, and it's, you'll note, not the protocols of the elders of Jewish people or Judaism, it's protocols of the elders of Zion, Zionism. They talk about a world king out of Israel, and I've talked about what I say that is in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 2, where I talk about the new Silicon Valley being built, called Silicon Wadi, out of Israel, which Jeffrey Epstein had connections to. So what does this mean for the world today? Well, what does it mean for the Palestinians? It means that Israel can do what it likes, and on the subject of Solomon's temple, there's a process. First of all, move the embassy to Jerusalem, which Trump has done, and through constant attacks on Israel, remove Palestinians from the area of Temple Mount, which is happening, and destroy the mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and replace it with the rebuilt Solomon's Temple. And along with this, America has already agreed to annex the Golan Heights. This is all part of the Greater Israel Plan, which I talk about in episode 60. So, Trump's moved the US Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He's pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, and he's attacked Syria and Iran both targets of the elite Zionist neoconservatives around him, and both were attacked on spurious reasoning, because it wasn't about attacking a country that needed to be attacked, it was finding an excuse. I talk in episode 60 about why those two countries have been targeted, and I talk a bit more about the Israeli-dictated American foreign policy. The plan is to start a massive conflict involving Iran and Russia and China to kick off a massive global conflict to justify after the conflict the structure of control the Sabbatean Frankist cult agenda demands which I talk about in episode 60 and the elite Zionist neoconservatives will push Trump for more conflicts and bombings and attacks on countries because the agenda demands that that happen and it may very well be that Trump if he gets in a second time will go all out in the second term because at the moment he, of course, given that we're in an election year now in America, has the chance to lose his chance of a second presidency because he came to power in election time saying he won't interfere in the affairs of other countries. But of course in the second term he'll have nothing to lose so it may well be that he, if he's going to do it at all, he does it then. So we'll have to wait and see on that. But the elite Zionist neoconservatives, and I explain what neoconservatives are in episode 60. We'll push for that, no doubt, or keep pushing for it, I should say, more accurately. But people are starting to more and more question these attacks and these invasions into other countries, which is good. We need to question, and we need to speak out on these matters. Never mind being called anti-Semitic. If it's true, it's true, and that's what we need to say, especially now more than ever.
carrying on the theme of Israeli control of America, specifically in this story, foreign policy. This is about Iran. This is in the South China Morning Post. Chinese social media users watch war of words unfold between Iran and US. Chinese internet users have been watching US and Iranian diplomats trading insults on the social media platform Weibo as tensions between the two countries escalated following the US missile strike that killed senior military commander Qasem Soleimani. I talk about that attack in episode 60. Soleimani, the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's elite Quds force, was killed in an airstrike near Baghdad airport after Iranian-backed militias attacked the US embassy. His death prompted mass anti-US protests in Iran and Iraq, while Tehran also retaliated with a missile attack on a US base. While some Western social media outlets such as Facebook and Instagram were reported to have censored pro-Iranian posts to comply with US sanctions, Weibo, which is subject to China's strict censorship regime, was happy to give the country's diplomats free reign to make their case. Well, a couple of points there. First of all, Facebook owns Instagram, and Facebook, like Silicon Valley in general, is owned by the military intelligence networks in America, and the Sabatine Frankist cult, which controls them. I talk about the Sabatine Frankist cult in War Roads Lead to Israel Part 1, and I detail many of the connections, although only a fraction in truth, between Silicon Valley and the military intelligence network, which is controlled by the Sabatine Frankist cult in a book I've just finished, which is at the printer's now, called Pay-Per-View in Print, which will be available soon. Anyway, more information on that closer to the time. Also, another point before I carry on reading the article. China is very much a dictatorial regime, a totalitarian regime, because unlike the West, who have to pay at least lip service to some kind of semblance of freedom and democracy. The two of them are the same, by the way. Democracy is just dictatorship by the majority. The West has to pay at least some lip service to at least an attempt to make the country a free country. China doesn't, and so there's no limits to what China can do, and that's why countries like China and North Korea can go as far as they have. When people in the West look at China, North Korea, and other totalitarian countries and they can see the difference between there and here because there's no limits on what China can do. People in China already know the situation so they don't have to try to make it look as if they live in a free country when they already know they don't. The article continues. Three days after the January 3rd missile strike that killed Soleimani, Iran's embassy in Beijing posted a translation of a tweet from the country's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, addressed to Donald Trump. He pointed to the large crowds mourning Soleimani, asking, have you ever seen such a sea of humanity in your life? Do you still want to listen to the clowns advising you on our region? And do you still imagine you can break the will of this great nation and its people? He described the event as marking the end of the malign U.S. presence in West Asia, which the embassy in Beijing translated as the end of the evil forces of America. In the next few days, that phrase repeatedly appeared in the Iranian embassy's Weibo post while the U.S. embassy struck back, accusing Soleimani of exporting terrorism, fanning sectarian violence and causing thousands of deaths. In contrast, the U.S. embassy's Twitter accounts made fewer comments on the dispute and largely eschewed heated rhetoric in favour of republishing State Department comments. The irony of the two embassies quarrelling on a platform where sensitive topics such as religion, protests, or Taiwan independence are routinely censored was not lost on Weibo users. The world's biggest imperialist country and the world's biggest theocracy 
if theocracy is a form of government in which a god or a deity of some kind is recognized as the ruler as opposed to the traditional form of government, a human leader. Are fighting vehemently using standard Chinese on an internet platform in the world's biggest socialist country, one popular comment said on Weibo. Last week, a spokesman for Facebook told CNN that pro-Soleimani posts were being removed from the site and its affiliate Instagram to comply with US sanctions. But as the two embassies' quarrel continued, Chinese state media happily jumped on the dispute, crowning it Battle of Liang Macau after one of Beijing's main diplomatic quarters. The early stages of the dispute prompted a flurry of pro-Iran posts by web users, including posts that read, We support the Iranian people in beating down the world's top terrorists. But the tone shifted after Iran admitted shooting down a Ukrainian passenger jet, killing all 176 people on board. While some praised Tehran for admitting its mistake, other once vocal supporters said the news felt like a slap in the face. One Weibo user wrote, Iran shooting down that plane and causing so many civilian deaths is a serious mistake. Those responsible must be punished for the victims and their families. Well, two points there. Again, one, not been presented with any evidence that Iran did shoot down the plane. B, if Iran shot down the plane... I can understand why they would, given America's constant attempts to provoke them into conflict and the recent attack on Soleimani. Article continues. One observer suggested Chinese censors may have let the rag continue because it served as a good distraction from problems closer to home. Hong Ying Wang, an associate professor of political science at the University of Waterloo in Canada, said the authorities should be happy to have the public focus on issues other than the economic slowdown, the trade war, Hong Kong, or public health worries. With the Chinese government having Iran and the US fight over Chinese social media provides an opportunity to counter Western criticism of China's censorship and to impress upon Chinese citizens China's role as an important and fair-minded arbiter on major issues in world politics. But she said that if the Iran-US war of wars prompted undesirable reactions from Chinese web users, the government will quickly close things down. Well, the internet's already massively censored in China. The spat also highlights the way foreign embassies have tried to engage with the Chinese public to promote their ideas and values. Given the Iranian government's restricted access to Western social media platforms, Chinese social media provides a valuable outlet for its messages to reach the international community, Wang said. She argued that China was an important supporter of Iran in the face of sanctions from the US and its allies, so it was probably particularly keen to present its perspective to the Chinese public. The US embassy said it welcomed any way with followers interested in American culture, politics and people, and was happy to engage with web users and answer their questions. Answer their questions in line with what the government military intelligence network wants people to believe. We expect critical discussion and debate which might include both support and criticism of US policy. However, disrespectful or malicious statements about other individuals or groups are not acceptable and are deleted according to our terms of use, an embassy spokesperson said. A company spokesperson for Facebook said, We operate under US sanctions laws, including those related to the US government's designation of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its leadership. The Iranian embassy, which has more than 300,000 followers on Weibo, could not be reached for comment. Twitter has also been contacted for comment. Although Weibo diplomatic rows are rare, this is not the first time the Chinese public have been able to witness such a dispute. In 2014, the shooting down of a Malaysian Airlines flight over Ukraine, an incident widely blamed on Russian-backed separatists, prompted a row between the Russian and Polish embassies. After the Russian embassy defended the country's policies in Ukraine, attacking its critics in the US and Europe, the Polish ambassador responded by telling Russia to respect the facts. Talking of technology in Iran, here's another interesting article from the past week. This is in the Financial Times. U.S. boosts funding of tech companies to help anti-Tehran protests. 
U.S. government-funded technology companies have recorded an increase in the use of circumvention software in Iran in recent weeks after boosting efforts to help Iranian anti-regime protesters thwart internet censorship and use secure mobile messaging. The outreach is part of a U.S. government program dedicated to internet freedom that supports dissident pressure inside Iran and complements America's policy of maximum pressure over the regime. U.S. government dedicated to internet freedom. Well, the Pentagon and Department of Defense and onwards are not dedicated to internet freedom. And that's evident in the way that they run Silicon Valley. Article continues. A U.S. State Department official told the Financial Times that since protests in Iran in 2018, at the time the largest in almost a decade, Washington had accelerated efforts to provide Iranians more options on how they communicate with each other in the outside world. The U.S. supportive measures include providing apps, servers, and other technology to help people communicate, visit banned websites, install anti-tracking software, and navigate data shutdowns. Many Iranians rely on virtual private networks, VPNs, that receive U.S. funding or are beamed in with U.S. support, not knowing they're relying on Washington-backed tools. We work with technological companies to help free flow of information and to provide circumvention tools that help to last which protest a second U.S. State Department official told the FT. You're able to sponsor VPNs and that allows Iranians to use the internet. Whatever the reason is for that, it's not freedom of information. That's for sure. The US Treasury Department has issued waivers for such software and services despite the Trump administration's imposition of swinging sanctions when it withdrew from the 2015 International Nuclear Accord. I talk about America withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal in episode 16. Canadian circumvention software maker Siphon, which benefits from U.S. government funding and a treasury license, said it recorded a 25% jump in usage in January in Iran. Monthly usage of this app, which provides a private, secure connection for Iranians to maneuver through censorship firewalls to reach servers in the West, rose to about 3 million users in the country of 80 million, Michael Hall, Siphon's president and co-founder, told the Financial Times. President Donald Trump has said he wants to pursue talks with Iran to strike a new deal limiting Tehran's nuclear and ballistic missile programs. However, hopes that regime change will come via popular uprising have been bolstered by a wave of protests triggered by the shooting down on January the 8th of a passenger jet by Iran's Revolutionary Guard that killed 176 people. We fully expect these protests to continue because the Iranian regime is facing a crisis of legitimacy and credibility, said Brian Hook, U.S. Special Representative for Iran. The Trump administration has built on an Obama-era program dedicated to providing safe, free internet in countries including Iran. This year, the U.S. will spend at least $65.5 million on the internet freedom program, a 30% increase since Obama left office, according to the House of Representatives Appropriations Committee. Iranians have for years turned to dozens of VPN apps on mobile phones and computers to disguise their location in order to freely access social media and news sites blocked by their regime, such as Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and the Telegram messaging app, plus opposition and pornographic websites. Other sites such as Instagram, owned by Facebook, are not restricted and are widely used. Meanwhile, a plethora of satellite television networks means Iranians have access to opposition channels. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani has resisted efforts by regime hardliners to increase internet restrictions since he came to power in 2013, but protests in November were met by internet outages on an unprecedented scale. Netblocks, an independent internet observatory, said Iran shut down internet and mobile phone networks for a week, hampering protesters' ability to coordinate or access information. It reported targeted data disruption last week, directed at university campus by students chanting anti-regime slogans. As I said, America is trying to provoke Iran in any way possible, and one of the ways to do that is to 
if you can't get the provocation through attack directly or other means of more direct conflict, then get the citizens of the country you want to target to do it for you. And that is achieved by imposing sanctions. And that's what happened in Venezuela, which I talk about in episode 49. And in that episode, I talk in more detail about the wider picture of US, Britain, etc. Regime change and invasions. Another way is to create a proxy army and use them to attack the regime you want to target with no media or condemnation from your country's leaders. And then when that regime starts shooting back or starts attacking back or being attacked, then you claim they're trying to kill their own people and use that as an excuse. This is what happened in Libya. This is what they tried to do in Syria. It didn't work, which is why they're still targeting Syria. The article continues. Iranians can access tools to download siphon, VPN services, encrypted messaging apps and news stories curated from 200 publishers through Net Freedom Pioneers, a California-based Iran-focused non-profit group that funded in part by the U.S. government. It creates a daily data bundle that is hidden in a television program beamed into Iran via satellite, which viewers download for use on their laptop without using the internet, evading detection and saving money. The bundle includes podcasts, screenshots of news websites such as BBC Persian, TED Talks and tools to help install secure messaging on mobile phones. We made the data package larger and included more messaging tools, said Mehdi. Yayanajad, Net Freedom Pioneers can find our efforts to help protesters sidestep internet controls. Just by tuning into the channel, they should receive our decoder app and be able to download it. He said 4 million Iranians have downloaded their data. US officials and tech companies are also considering how to help thwart future shutdowns by boosting offline messaging tools which can send messages via Bluetooth and peer-to-peer networks without an internet or mobile phone connection. Some have reported thousands of downloads of offline messaging apps since the November shutdown. These require a heavy density of app users which may not be feasible outside cities or in the event of a large-scale state crackdown. Offline messaging tools are certainly growing in popularity and more users are becoming aware of them, said Feridun Bashar, executive director of ASL19, a Canadian technology company that supplies software to Iran. The group's services recorded a 50% week-on-week increase in VPN downloads during last week's protests, it said. The U.S. State Department last year suspended funding to the Iran Disinformation Project, a group intended to counter Iranian propaganda but which instead targeted human rights activists and journalists who it deemed insufficiently hostile to the regime in Tehran. Social media censorship and filtering of information can give the impression that Certain opinions, such as opinions about a regime, are coming from various sources and reflect a wide range of opinion. Oh, look, this is all over Twitter. Look, oh, that's on Facebook. About a certain subject or regime, when in fact, the Silicon Valley giants are censoring certain views and highlighting other views, not least through algorithms. And so when one view stands out among the rest, it can seem like that's the most popular when it's merely the one which has been highlighted and all the others challenging that been censored because it serves the cult which controls social media silicon valley and in this case the very military intelligence and government which want a conflict with iran and this is why looking to alternative sources of information beyond the mainstream media and beyond much of social media is so important and that's what pay-per-view and iconic are all about of course And 
next subject this week is the Australian bushfires. This is in The Guardian. Bushfire destroyed homes should not be rebuilt in riskiest areas, experts say. State governments have been warned against promising to recreate some communities destroyed by the bushfire crisis and urged to consider preventing homeowners from rebuilding their homes in the riskiest areas. Three planning experts, including two who appeared on a planning panel convened for the Victorian Black Saturday Royal Commission, told Guardian Australia to avoid repeating what they consider the mistakes of past bushfire recoveries. They call for state governments to buy back land from people in the most bushfire-prone areas as occurred after Black Saturday and raised particular concerns about rebuilding and isolated homes and towns, particularly those where there was one road in and one road out and those in heavily timbered environments. If we keep locating people out in these high-risk areas, more property damage is going to be experienced and more lives are going to be lost, said planning expert Professor Michael Buxton, who gave evidence at the 2009 Royal Commission. Authorities in Victoria said at least 350 homes had fires that have ravaged the southeast, while the figures in New South Wales now stand at more than 1,500. 28 people have also been killed since October, including 20 in New South Wales and 5 in Victoria. Both the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews and New South Wales' Gladys Barajiklian have promised to rebuild devastated communities and unfurled significant funding packages to support them. However, Victoria's immediate promise to rebuild one local primary school drew some criticism from the local fire captain who claimed it would be all but impossible to defend in a future fire. Ross Hansen, who also appeared as a planning expert at the Royal Commission, told Guardian Australia she remained concerned that people would rebuild in dangerous areas. With some of the places that have been affected by the bushfires, the geography of the places such that the fire will come to the ridge line and then sweep down the valley, and then really there's nothing you can do to stop it, she said. In those situations, people who are in settlements or in locations where that's the geography of their immediate environment and they only had one road, to me that's a death trap. Buxton said the 2009 Royal Commission indicated that in some cases, due to topography, access and climate change, the risk could not be reduced to an acceptable level. So if those homes burned down, why would any responsible government allow them to be rebuilt, he said. A number of communities across NSW and Victoria have been cut off at the height of fires that have ravaged both states in the new year. Thousands have been evacuated in towns where authorities have said they will not be able to protect them. Professor Alan March at the University of Melbourne told Guardian Australia he was certain there would be homes that authorities were later rule cannot be rebuilt. I'm sure there will be some areas where that will be the case, particularly remote locations or locations on extreme slopes next to extensive areas of bushland and forest, he said. March, as well as Buxton and Hanson, declined to name any specific areas where they believed homeowners or local authorities should not rebuild, but he said government should consider relocating public facilities, roads and realigning lots of boundaries and the like. Buxton pointed to the example of Y River in Victoria, which was rebuilt after devastating fires in 2015, as one he hoped the government did not repeat. If there was an area that should not have been allowed to be rebuilt, it was that, Buxton told Guardian Australia. The government could have actually spent that amount of money on work to allow for the rebuild just buying back the land because the house was covered by insurance. Hanson said she remained concerned about Marysville, a town in Victoria's Yarra Valley. She told the Royal Commission should not have been rebuilt after Black Saturday. She said any buyback scheme should be voluntary, but in cases where people wanted to rebuild, the requirements should be very stringent. I've even said that in some cases it should be mandatory that they have bunkers in that particular settlement. The owners of 198 properties applied for this scheme and 138 were deemed to be eligible. Of the 138,116 have settled or are about to settle with the government. After more than 2,000 homes were lost during the fires, the Victorian government said its buyback scheme cost $25.6 million to buy 116 homes. About 200 applied but not all were eligible as the homes needed to be within 100 metres of significant forest. March acknowledged that such schemes were expensive for the government and challenging for local communities who would take years to come to terms with their loss. It's not a simple process because it requires 
People to engage with formal systems they might not be ready to engage with when they're suffering from the effects of a bushfire, he said. Well, I talked about the California wildfires in episode 44, part 1. I said that if there are plans announced to build a new high-speed rail network in the area, then that points along with claims of directed energy weapons and people reporting seeing beams of light around the time of the fires or before the fires to the United Nations Agenda 21 being at work. I talk about Agenda 21 in episode 18 and its offshoot, Agenda 2013, episode 36. This applies to these bushfires. The cult's agenda is to get people off the land and into the city, as I explain in episode 18. It's interesting this article talks about roads because Agenda 21 involves changing the look of countries physically in terms of roads and access to certain places and regionalising countries and it's all part of Agenda 21. Looking at photos of these bushfires, the aftermath of photos look remarkably like the California wildfires and cars are damaged and paintwork has been stripped off the car but next to the cars are trees still standing and... If there was a regular fire, then trees would be destroyed. Directed energy weapons seem to be more discriminatory about what they destroy, whereas a natural fire just blazes indiscriminately. We should always keep in mind that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The cult directing society is only interested in its agenda and, through elite Zionism, implements its agenda, placing elite Zionism positions of power and influence to achieve it. Nothing is off-limits in terms of the actions of the control-free cult. It just wants to achieve its agenda and the control that comes with that. Language. This is in Daily Mail. Pub banter and jokes with colleagues can be classed as workplace sexual harassment even if it's unintended, a quality watchdog warns. Pub banter and jokes with colleagues can amount to sexual harassment even if unintended and businesses must train staff to be aware of risks at after-work events, the Equality Watchdog has warned. Unwanted jokes and even facial expressions, I'll come back to that one in a minute, can also amount to unacceptable behaviour even if that is not how it was intended, warns Rebecca Hilsenrath who chairs the Equality and Human Rights Commission. She outlined the concerns in a letter to 400 major firms which called for stringent anti-harassment policies in light of the Me Too scandal. I talk about me too in episode 40. The unwanted conduct highlighted also includes pranks, social media, contact and mimicry, the letter said. Companies are advised to follow a series of steps and technical guidance which the EHRC hopes will eventually become statutory guidance enforceable by law. Sexual harassment offences can include suggestive looks, staring or leering, as well as intrusive questions about a person's sex life. There were also warnings against spreading sexual rumours and a welcome hugging, massaging, kissing and touching. Mrs. Hilsenrath said employers are responsible for any action which falls within the course of employment, including afterward drinks in the pub or leaving parties. In the letter seen by the Daily Telegraph, employers were advised to take seven steps that could be used as evidence in tribunals. They include creating an anti-harassment policy, engaging staff, cutting risks and giving training. Other steps include making it simple to report incidents, acting immediately upon a complaint and drawing up guidance to protect staff from harassment by other parties, including customers. The government is currently carrying out a consultation into existing harassment laws. Mrs. Hilsenrath's letter said firms must step up action against bad behaviour. Under new guidelines, employers will be expected to provide definitions and clear examples of harassment along with warnings that violating the policy could lead to them being fired. Research reportedly showed three quarters of workers have experienced sexual harassment with the watchdog claiming it is pervasive in contexts as diverse as Hollywood and Westminster. Well, question here. 
is sexual harassment actually on the rise? Or is the interpretation of it expanded so what is merely banter or just a throwaway statement or phrase is classed as sexual harassment and is believed to be when it's not? The article continues. Mrs. Hilson said that the burden to challenge harassment had been on the victim rather than the employer for too long. She wrote, Recent high-profile cases have shone an important light on the continued harassment many women face in the workplace and show that we still need to do more to modernise working cultures. The letter added, It's been two years since Me Too forced sexual harassment to the top of the agenda. We've seen some employers wake up, take this on board and start to make the difference, but we need others to follow suit. The issue is not going to go away, and if we're going to create working environments where no one is ever made to feel unsafe or threatened that we need a dramatic shift in workplace cultures. See, this is where political correctness has the wrong approach, because instead of censoring to appease the feelings of a certain minority or a certain group of people, instead of them believing they're victims, how about helping them to see that the choice to be a victim is with the person who believes they're a victim, not the person who's doing the victimizing and how about making people feel so confident and strong within themselves that they don't care what is said about them and then there's no censorship necessary but that doesn't work with an agenda of censorship which this cult has and I mentioned facial expressions just now when I was reading the article this is from Forbes magazine. This is what's known as Face Crime from Orwell's 1984. This was published on October 2018. Have you committed a face crime today? In George Orwell's 1984, there is a moment when Winston Smith feels a pang of terror as he realises that he was being watched without realising it. It was terribly dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you were in any public place or within a range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away. A nervous tick, an unconscious look of anxiety, a habit of muttering to yourself, anything that carried with it the suggestion of abnormality, of having something to hide. In any case, to wear an improper expression on your face to look incredulous when a victory was announced, for example, was itself a punishable offence. There was even a word for it in Newspeak. Face crime, it was called. Goes the quote from... 1984. The article continues. Recently I found myself scanning for face crimes. I was looking at the people standing behind US President Donald Trump as he mocked Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and her accusations of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh, the subsequently confirmed US Supreme Court nominee. Even some of the President's supporters in the US Senate were bulking at his comments, or at least they said they were, albeit in carefully calculated statements. I was interested in this group's spontaneous reaction the president's blunt comments has captured on video. Who were these people and were they supporting President Trump on this contentious issue, I wondered. Well, there's a lot of questions to ask about that Brett Kavanaugh situation. But anyway, the article continues. Using face recognition, we can know many faces are identifiable using available data sets containing billions of tagged photos. By gauging video sentiment on contentious issues, much else could be inferred about their general attitudes and preferences. Initial sketches could be enhanced with insights gleaned from other public data, including other public events. Organisers already police their crimes. Take, for example, the plaid shirt guy who was recently removed from a Trump rally for, as he described it, not being enthusiastic enough. Where might this lead? 
Organizers could easily analyze footage during and after rallies to know who their most enthusiastic supporters are and who are not. With rudimentary social network analysis, holders of unacceptable sentiments could be outed to families, friends and co-workers. Employers could judge the sentiments and actions of their employees both at work and other videoed settings. Isolated instances such as when protesters were fired after being identified by the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, VA, could happen on a regular basis. It doesn't have to stop there. Consider a recent example from China where a smart eye system monitors students' engagement and emotions in the classroom. Next, pair this with China's recently launched social credit system which could control, among other things, students' access to top-notch schools. One can easily imagine how improper facial expressions might slide down the slippery slope to become punishable offences. I've said before that the agenda is to build a surveillance state. And, of course, when you say that, people don't always know the extent you're talking about. Well, I'm in a surveillance state on steroids, and then some. Silicon Valley alone already has the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. And that's just in one concentrated area in California. Political correctness and sexual harassment is driving apart men and women. It's driving apart discourse because as well as divide and rule, which is essential for any tiny few, i.e. the cult to control, billions or any large number of people you not only have to control perception you also have to control the interaction and the communication and of course this happens through social media massively and another reason for driving apart discourse is i mean look at what happens when you go out socially you can have a whole table of people apparently socializing while being on their phone not talking not drinking, not eating, just out on their phone. You could have stayed at home. The relationship the cult wants is not human and human. It's human and machine. And that's why we have this addiction to technology now. It's And the assistants like Alexa and Siri, seed funded by DARPA, the cult in other words, it's all about preparing the human and machine relationship and if you look at the different areas of political correctness they are actually areas of the agenda the cult's agenda for example the idea is to destroy culture and replace it with a monoculture and i talk about that in episode 46 so what you do is you manipulate students a university or college as they call it in america to seek to erase certain historical figures or events from the curriculum often white people and when at christmas for example you hear a story of islamic people apparently we're never told who they are as we're never told who anyone is who complains about anything of political correctness and it's often actually not the people themselves who are complaining it's people on their behalf who were not part of that group but you'll hear a story, for example, that Islamic, especially here in Britain, I don't know what it's like in other countries, Islamic people have complained about some Christmas, kind of maybe Christian in style, imagery or symbolism. And so it was taken down or it was removed or it was replaced or whatever, because it's the politically correct thing to do. That's all part of changing the culture. And it's the same with sexual harassment, because the idea in the end is that sexuality and gender are designed to no longer exist and procreation 
between man and woman as we've known it up to this point is designed to no longer exist as designer humans, synthetic humans are the replacement. So the different areas of political correctness are actually areas of the agenda. Feminism is massively connected to the Rockefeller family, one of the cult family bloodlines. It's all part of breaking up the family and getting women into the workplace so they can be taxed like men. So all these different areas are part of the agenda. And that's not to say that I don't support independent women, you know, as women should support independent men. I mean, it's, it's an obvious thing to support, but there's an agenda here. And that's what needs to be understood. I don't support sexual harassment, but there's an agenda here. And policing the language is part of that agenda, as well as the bigger picture of sexuality and gender no longer existing in the end. And when you look at words that are targeted, they're words that relate to culture or sexuality or that which is targeted under the cult's agenda. For example, you'll notice how certain words relating to skin color are targeted because that obviously has a connection to culture. So you target that because you don't want that. You don't want culture. So you change the language. Just as they're doing now with gender, same thing. And political correctness is used to achieve the cult's agenda and silence exposure of the cult's agenda. So it's, we're doing it, but if you say we're doing it, you're a bigot and whatever else that comes with that. Whatever phobia or ist you are, and you need to be censored, therefore. See, this is why understanding the agenda is so important, because most people would just look at the story. Well, some would see how ridiculous it is, but a lot of people would look at it especially the progressives, and they would see that sexual harassment is being targeted and dealt with, and that would seem to be a good thing, unless you know the agenda behind it. There's two levels of knowledge, and if you know the second level of knowledge, then you can see world events in a very different way, and that's what pay-per-view is all about. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest in connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.